All right, we're going to take a moment and pray, so let's stay kind of right in this space for a moment as Anaji plays. Just the sense that I had as I was worshiping in this room with you and just honoring all those watching online is that the Lord just wants to draw some of us closer to him today. If I were to ask the question, who of us wants to be closer to God, I think most of us would say, I do. But there are these invisible things that stand between us and God. It's a feeling of shame, of not being worthy, of poor decisions, of um, a view of God as a father because of our father growing up, or whatever it is. There's all these things. They're not actually there, but they feel like they're there between us and God. And I just sense so deeply in my heart that the Lord wants to graciously just let those things disintegrate, that you would know that the path is so clear. So just take a moment maybe in, in your own way, just for 20 seconds. I know this could be a little odd if you're not used to this, but if you're going to attend a church that believes in prayer, you have to understand that these are the moments we love. So take a moment right now, maybe 20, 30 seconds, and in your own way, could you express to God your desire to be close to him? Even if it feels awkward, even if you've never prayed this before, he's not going to make fun of you. Just tell him in your own way. Say, God, I need you. Jesus, I pray that as we open your word today and we have this conversation, that you would bring to our mind, you bring to our heart areas of our lives that are maybe causing us to feel that you are not accessible. That in some ways we've bought into a type of lie um, that you want to know us, but you don't want to do life with us. Lord, regardless of where we are right now in our life, help us, Jesus, to open our hearts to you today and to not be anxious in this moment, but to be present, again, for all those in the room and all those watching online. We love you. In Jesus' name, and everybody says, amen. I'm so glad that you are here. I want to say something uh, just quick before we get started. I can't tell you how much joy it brings me to hear what's happening at the youth at the Father's house. You have to understand, and I don't mean this to sound cynical, but there are a lot of amazing churches. There really are. But there are not a lot of amazing churches that invest in their youth. I'm telling you right now. I'm telling you right now. You say, Chris, I don't believe you. Do the research for yourself. And when I see CJ and I see what's happening here and I see the investment being made, I want to encourage you, parents, even if you feel like it's going to take a while for your youth to feel comfortable coming to an event or coming to a service, pray for them. Talk with them about it. Don't give up. Because for those of us that got to grow up in a church that had a good youth ministry, if you were to ask us, 
remove that experience from our lives, are we a different person? And the answer is 100% yes. Because if it wasn't for the friends that we met at church and the community that we found, and when, our, when a young adult leader prayed for us for the first time and we were baptized and our friends were there, listen to me, it is formative and it sticks with our young people for the rest of their lives. So grandparents, parents, aunts, uncles, please hear my voice. Take advantage of the fact that you just happen to attend a church that invests in their youth. And everybody says, amen. Thank you, Najee. All right, so we're going to begin our time together today, and I'm going to kind of ask if we could use our imaginations for just a moment to think back to when we were kids. Now, for some of us, it might not seem that long ago. For others, it might take a little bit of horsepower, right, just to think back to the time when we would ride our bike around a neighborhood or if you grew up in a larger city, take a train or walk, whatever it looked like, I'm not sure. But if you could for just a moment, imagine with me the three to five households that you spent the most amount of time in besides yours when you were a child. Just for a moment, think about it. When you get on your bike and you'd head up that driveway, does anybody remember the parent of a friend that you just knew hated you for some reason? <laughs> anybody? See, some of you were too good at kids. You're like, no, they always were so glad when I came. How many of us know what I'm talking about? Seriously, you knew when you walked in the door and the mom saw you were there, she couldn't even fake it with her face. She hated you. You know why she hated you? She thought you were selling drugs to her kid or something. Who knows what was going on? Hopefully you weren't. But who knows what was going on? And then there were other households that you'd walk into and you would just sense an underlying tension. A little bit of anger. Could be a big house, small house. I don't know. But you would sense that there was just always something kind of present in the house. Brené Brown, who I've, I've heard her name come up a few times as an author, uh, who's just an amazing author. If you've ever read any of her stuff, she talks about how she teaches her kids to sense when an environment is safe or unsafe. And she doesn't mean just teaching them physically, like somebody's going to shank you or something like that. She's teaching her kids to know, like, is, is this house emotionally safe? Is there an underlying anger? And how to know that as a kid early on, because that's important to figure that out in life and working environments and these things, how to navigate that kind of stuff is crucial. But some of us can remember uh, pulling up to some of these houses, running through the yards, whatever it looked like, and there was just always tension. And some of you are thinking, gosh, I hope that's not my house. I think that's my house. <laughs> I know how you feel. Listen. And then others of us can remember homes that just felt, I know this is going to sound a little new agey and stuff like that, almost felt like they were filled with light. There was just something happy about them. There was a joy. It wasn't a perfect house. And the amazing thing is that when I was reflecting back on this, and, we're, and we continue to move forward in our time together today, I realized in my life, it didn't really matter the scale of the house, whether it was a big house. This is stuff we get caught up in as adults, right? Like the bigger the house or the nicer the things, the better the experience we provide. I was thinking back to the house that made me feel most safe. And it was a home of a very close friend whose mom was a single mom. And she lived in a little house down towards the Mount Hope area. Uh, for those of you watching online, you don't live in Rochester. That's a beautiful part of our city. Little teeny house. But whenever I walked in this friend's house, there was no male presence in the house whatsoever as a father. But I cannot explain to you. Something about that house just made me want to take off my shoes 
and stay as long as I possibly could. And my friend's mom would often put on a pot of coffee, and I hadn't thought about this in years until I started working on this. And I knew that when that pot of coffee went on, we were probably too young to be drinking coffee, but whatever, um, right? I think back on that, I'm like, holy cow, we were chugging coffee at like my daughter's age. I'm like, what were we doing? But who cares? Because it became the glue to have conversations about God and about life and concerns and fears and weird things that were happening around us and families that were falling apart that we didn't understand as kids. And I would sit at their kitchen table and it was, I can't even describe it. It's not as though she said, hey, Chris, now we're going to have real talk. It just happened because the house felt safe. I remember one time there were these amazing guest speakers that came through the father's house. Um, and every once in a while, Pastor Pierre, Pastor Marlise would invite Tanya and I to join a dinner and meet some of these wonderful people who love God but were really making waves in sports or things like that. And there was a, prof a professional boxer, and I'd always wanted to meet a professional boxer because I grew up in an era where, like, boxing was really popular still, not just UFC, but I grew up in, like, the Tyson Holyfield era. Who knows what I'm talking about? Oh, yeah, see, some of you don't understand. It's okay. I know when he bit him, it was like, whoa. Like, that, that's probably what created UFC was that bite. They're like, okay, boxing is weird now. I got an idea. You know what I mean? Like, they bite each other. You know what I mean? It's like, whatever. But I grew up in that era where these people were larger than life. And Rocky and all that. Okay, I'll stop. I'm going to really start showing my age. But So we were out to dinner with this couple, and this guy actually fought a Vander Holyfield. And I'm sitting across from him, and I'm just thinking... If you ever put me in the ring with somebody, with Evander Holyfield, and he made eye contact with me, I think I would just disappear. But this guy had the courage to believe he could beat him. And we were sitting there, but what became the best part of the conversation, as funny as it sounds, was actually talking with his wife. Because she was raising the kids when this individual was pursuing their career and climbing the ladder of success. And she told Tanya and I something uh, she said, I want to give you a secret. Stack your fridge and your, cupboard, your cupboards because you want to be the house that all the kids in the neighborhood want to be at. So make sure your freezer is always full of ice cream. Make sure you always got all the junk food, and if you don't like that, organic junk food or whatever. <laughs> whatever makes you feel better right now, I'm sorry. Um, it's like we're infecting all the kids in our neighborhood, right? Like, make sure you've got a lot of it, because even if you don't have the biggest house, even if you don't have all the stuff, they'll come to your house, because that's fun. And I'll tell you what, I have no idea how much money my wife spends on ice cream, but the whole side down the freezer is ice cream, and kids will walk into my house, and they will open the freezer, and they will just grab ice cream, and I'll be standing there thinking, wow, this is interesting, it's almost like a food pantry, but just ice cream. <laughs> Um, but in doing that, the goal is that we're hoping to create an environment that feels hospitable. Where regardless, I mean, to be honest, some of these kids, their parents are wildly successful, but they're coming to our house for ice cream because they know the refrigerator, you can open it. It's not perfect in here, but just grab an ice cream Snickers bar like on the house. We got you covered. And when I think about the houses that made me feel most safe, most welcome, they're the houses that felt the most hospitable. 
Now, if you were to ask me to define the word hospitable or hospitality before seminary, I would have told you, okay, hospitality is when you're sitting at the golf course and there's a wedding and they bring out like the vats of pasta and like meatballs and the, the salad that has like a million tomatoes in it kind of thing. Like that's hospitality at service. I would have told you about when you walk up to Wegmans at the service desk and like that feels like hospitality or returning a product or something like that. But when we were in seminary, we had the amazing opportunity when I had the privilege to go through seminary, Pastor Pierre, Pastor Marlies, as they were continuing their education, we jumped on board and got to learn a lot as well. And there was this gentleman that wanted to introduce us to the topic of biblical hospitality. And this will all tie together, I promise. He said, I want to tell you a story in the scripture that will help you understand biblical hospitality, not just the crispy salad at the country club at a wedding. I want to teach you what it means to be hospitable. And in doing so, I felt like he was connecting my brain to sitting at that kitchen table with my friend's mom. It was the strangest moment. I felt like it all began to connect of, oh, this is why when I'm in God's presence and I'm amongst friends, I feel safe. This is why certain places feel safe and others don't. But he told this story. He said, do you remember the woman who was caught in adultery? Right? And when we hear this story, a lot of times we fixate so much on the end of the story, we forget about there's an actual person here, a woman who was caught in an act, and the Bible says she was partially clothed. We get so hung up on the end of the story, if we're not careful, we can lose focus on the individuals throughout the story and the end of the story. So the Bible tells us that this woman is caught in a shameful act. She's partially clothed. The Pharisees hear about it. They bring her to Jesus as leverage to try to get him in trouble. So not only was she caught in a shameful act, now they're bringing her as a tool, as leverage to get to Jesus. For just a moment, would you allow yourself to feel the pain of this woman? Have you ever done that when you've read this story? So now she's being dragged through crowds, partially clothed by powerful people, all because they want to use her as a scapegoat to prosecute Jesus before his time, because they hate him. He is messing up their whole plan and how they do life. So they bring her to him. Imagine the anger and the anxiety and the frustration and the rage. You know when you're around somebody whose heart is all complicated, and whenever you're around them, you can almost feel the pressure of everything undealt with, everything that's unforgiven in them trying to get on you. You know what I'm talking about? Um, hopefully it's not the person you're married to. Seriously. Because this is a total side note. I'm at an age now, I've been married 22 years, you begin to see like one of my mentors here at this church says, it takes longer for the honeymoon phase to wear off than you think. And you can tell when people have undealt with stuff in their life. It's one of the most painful things in life that I see is when people just choose to shelf that and make everybody in their family pay the price. That's a total side note. But if you can imagine the Pharisees are radiating this terrible vibe and they're all this anger, all this bitterness... I would say that hatred is probably more towards Jesus than even this woman caught in the act. She's just a scapegoat. 
They bring her to him. And they're like, we got him. Now we can finally frame Jesus, who we hate. And they begin to ask him questions in front of all these people. If we can get him to say the wrong answer, then we got him. And what does Jesus do? He does something. I've never heard of a book written about it. I've never seen a movie made about it because it's just too strange. For those of you that know the story, he gets down in the dirt and he begins to write in the dirt. Look it up if you don't believe me. And when this gentleman, if you remember, I'm still telling the seminary story, when this gentleman who had his PhD in the New Testament was explaining to us the story through the lens of hospitality, he said to us, he said, you know what I think? Here's what I think Jesus was doing. He was taking control of the situation. He was saying to these individuals and creating a pause, your anxiety and your anger does not move me a millimeter. All that you think you are and all that you think that's inside of you that's worthy of my attention right now, I'm going to take a moment and draw. I'm going to talk to my father for a moment while you think all this rage and anger can move me off my foundation. And when I'm ready, I'll stand back up. And when I stand back up, what will have happened is this environment will have shifted from hostility to hospitality. Henry Nouwen, if you ever want to look up a beautiful piece, a guy named Henry Nouwen wrote, and in our lives as Christ followers, there has to be a moment where hostility shifts to hospitality to our loved ones and people who don't know Jesus and these types of things. And what does he do? He stands up and he basically protects this woman by turning everything, without sinning, turning everything back on these individuals. And one by one, they began to leave. So in the early part of this message, we've spoken about homes that have made us feel safe as kids. And even now, we could think of those homes. We've looked at a biblical picture of hospitality. And this could seem a little bit predictable, but let me explain it. I want to ask the question, how hospitable are we? But pause for a moment. Because of the stories that I've shared so far, you might think that I'm saying, how hospitable are we to one another, though that matters greatly. The question that I have for us today to reflect on is how hospitable are we towards God? Just for a moment, hear me, please. Online, everybody here, how hospitable are we towards God? Because think about this for a moment. There's a beautiful verse that talks about us being a temple of the Holy Spirit. If you don't know about that, if you're new to church or you're new to faith, just go home and look it up, study it a little bit. It's absolutely beautiful to understand that you're a temple of the Holy Spirit. You'll find a lot of great stuff real quick. But how many of us know that we can live in the same place with someone else and actually despise them? Did you hear what I just said? I can live in the same house with my kids or my wife, but choose to allow my heart to not be turned towards them. We can sleep in the same bed. We can sleep in rooms right down from one another. You can work in the same place as other people. We can share a dwelling place and actually have no interest in one another at the same time. <laughs> I'm not getting a whole lot right now. I, just, I, hope it, I hope this makes sense. I hope what I'm saying clicks and it feels right. So we can actually have God living inside of us 
and choose to not have a hospitable posture towards God. But here's the beautiful thing about God. The objective of this message is not to make us feel like trash. I know I've been so unhospitable towards God because we know where that goes, right? That's just going to make you more unhospitable towards God, right? We get in this thing of, well, let me beat myself up about it. Then we turn around. We're like, well, now I'm even further. Like, that didn't work. That's not the point of this message. The point of this conversation today is for me to show you a couple different examples in the scripture and for us to ask this question in our own personal relationship with Jesus. In these examples that we look at in the Bible, do any one of these examples connect with us personally where we need to confess, God, my heart needs to be more open to you in that particular way? That's all that I hope happens today. That as I share these examples with you, you and I would be able to answer the question, do we need to have a posture, a heart that is more open, more hospitable to God in that particular area of our life because God desires to be close to us in that way? So we're going to get moving here. The very first thing that I would like to talk about when it comes to God and when, it talks, when we talk about our heart being hospitable towards God is this. Does our heart need to become open? Does our heart need to become hospitable again, or maybe for the first time, to the God who multiplies? Can you say multiplies? Okay, just, just one more time so I know for sure you're with me. Say multiplies. When we look at the story in Matthew 14, 15 through 21, many of us have heard that story a bunch of times. Beautiful story. Jesus shows up, sees a boy that's there, a couple of fish, bread. He sees a lot of people that need sustenance, that need nourishment, that need food, that need energy. So what does he do? He takes the little bit that this boy has, and he prays, and this absolutely beautiful miracle happens. I'd say just about any of us, maybe not you, but me, if I was walking through the crowd and I saw just a boy with his lunch, I would not have had the thought, oh my gosh, imagine if we could do something really cool and that just multiplied. Like, how did that happen? Did it just all of a sudden become a pile? Did it? But it happened. I doubt that very many of us, maybe I'm wrong, would have that level of faith and imagination, but that's what Jesus does. In my mind, I'd be thinking, Man, by the time we cut up these two fish and bread for 5,000 people, like there's not, this is going to really do nothing for anyone. Imagine that cut up in 5,000 different ways. It just wouldn't work. But do we understand that God is the God who multiplies? Hear what I just said. Some of us have been living with such a little bit of happiness. Listen to me for a second. If we feel happiness, it's so fleeting. It's like a moth that just floats by. And we can read the set of verses, and we can believe that God is the God who multiplies. But do you believe that the God of multiplication can take that teeny, I'm talking even if it's a hair, amount of happiness in your life, and he could multiply it. Not because anything changes, 
Not because everything's, wow, you know, total transformation like a movie, but supernaturally because he's the God who multiplies. Some of us have been living with such a little bit of energy because life is hard or things are going on or work is really stressful and we're trying, and you should, we should, I am trying different health-related things to do very practical things to multiply that energy, but at the end of the day, maybe it just feels like, oh my gosh, I want to enjoy my life. I want to be enough for my friends, for my kids, for my grandkids, but I have this amount of energy that feels like it takes focus to sit up in the morning. And it takes focus just to say the right things. Do we need to become more hospitable? Do we once again need to open up our heart and our faith and our mind to believe that God is the God that can take the little bit of energy that you have and maybe he can multiply it to help us be more of a blessing to those around us? Of course, we talk about money and we talk about resources. Do we believe, can we use our imagination to believe that even in a season of what feels like lack, that God can multiply what he's given us? So as I continue to go through these examples, I'll give you another one. Do we need to become more hospitable or does our heart need to become more open to the God who listens? And I, I need to confess something to you. As I was working on this, it began to feel to me like, wow, this is just so simple. But I pray that in the simplicity of this message, maybe there's something that connects with your heart that can help us in our relationship with Jesus. Because I believe that some of us have talked about things so many times or our situation has almost become like a cul-de-sac that we're living in, whether it's work-related, life-related, emotional-related, health-related, whatever, we can begin to feel like everybody's ears have just turned off to our situation. And as I was reading this past week in John 4, 46 through 51, it tells the story. I'm not going to read the whole thing, but Jesus is back in the town where he turned water into wine. A government official comes to him bringing his son, no, talking about his son who is sick. He asks Jesus to come to the house and to heal his son. Jesus goes back and forth with him a little bit. It's a very interesting conversation. At the end of the conversation, Jesus basically says, hey, your son's going to be okay. You can go home. And as I was reading this, I know that every time I've heard this story, I have thought about this supernatural miracle of his boy being okay. But what about the fact that Jesus just stopped and listened to him? Jesus. The Jesus that we sing about, that we love, that we live in relationship with. Jesus stopped. I'm going to guess made eye contact with this government official, probably a person that had pretty different values than him. I'm just guessing. But he was actively listening, and he chose to do something on behalf of this individual. But the part that I want us to focus on is do we need to open up a heart again to understand that there is a God that actually desires to listen to you. He wants to hear about how your important relationships are making you feel right now. He actually has an interest to hear about your hopes and dreams, the things that are very exciting, and the desperate fears that are keeping you in prison. He desires to listen. Does our heart need to become hospitable or open again to the God who listens? 
Let's keep going here. The next one is the God who hurts. Can you say hurts? Something for me, when I look at the scripture, we think about Jesus as part of the Trinity, knowing that he has and always will be God, even when he was fully God and man, around in the lab with the Trinity as the human being is being created and emotion is being developed and the idea of tears and how we would need them for joy and for sadness that three times in the New Testament, Jesus allowed himself to cry. Three times. The first time is Jesus weeping over Jerusalem because he's looking at a group of people that are choosing to be far from him. The second time is when Jesus weeps because a close friend of his has died, Lazarus. And the amazing thing is, even though he would go on to raise Lazarus from the dead, he still allowed himself to sit in the disparity of that moment and to fully feel the loss of a close friend. And he allowed the very tears that he was chief designer for to flow down his face on the skin that he was chief designer for. He allowed himself to fully feel it. And then the third time we read in Hebrews, it says that Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with strong crying and tears unto him that was able to save him from death. Jesus was in front of a crucial decision to complete his mission on earth. He knew it was a hard decision. He knew he had to do it, but he still allowed the weight of that moment to feel deep inside of him, and he chose to weep. Not just weep, the Bible says, offered up prayers with strong crying and tears. And some of us are sitting in front of a situation, we know we need to make a very difficult decision, a relational, a professional, whatever that decision looks like, we can see the weightedness of the decision. We've prayed about it. Hopefully we've gotten some good counsel from other people that love the Lord. It's a really hard decision. It's okay to sit in front of that decision and feel the weight and the pain of it. But the question is, have you invited the God who hurts? Is your heart hospitable to allow Christ to be in the middle of that decision and the weightedness of it with you? Because how sad it is when we face some of the professional and the life decisions, some that are really challenging, but we allow ourselves to go into a pit of isolation. We don't realize that Christ gets it, and he wants to be with us in that moment, if we would say, God, I need you right now with me, is our heart hospitable towards him in those moments? And the final two before we pray. This one to me was really special when just processing this because I realized there's a lot of us that if we confess it, I feel in conversations I've had with people and in my own life that this one is kind of a subtle one, but it's a, it's a real one. The God who communes. Hear what I'm saying for just a second. Does our heart need to become more hospitable? Do we need to open the door to our hearts and be more hospitable and welcoming towards the God who communes? Listen to this verse. And I feel like, I don't know if as Christ followers we do a bad job living this out. I don't know what it is, but this just seems to be such a barrier. Matthew 9, 10 says, then it happened that as Jesus was reclining at the table in the house, behold, many tax collectors and sinners came 
and were dining with Jesus and his disciples. I read this interesting uh, study this past week that said some scholars believe that these were some of Matthew's old friends that just kind of came into the house because this is Jesus and we've been spending time with him. But you see the Bible says they're reclining at the table. You have some people at the table that have been like really working hard to follow Jesus well and you have some other people who knows when it says sinners like that could cover a lot of different things right and then tax collectors were known to be thieves they just manipulated people during that time and they took a bunch of money from them, and it was unjust you get the impression it wasn't always regulated really well and Jesus he's not leaning forward tense at the table this isn't like uh, you know I need to be the referee the Bible says he's reclined at the table he has a presence at the table that says Every one of these seats is the same. Like each of you belong here with me as much as the other person. The sinner, your seat is no less valuable than the seat that Matthew's in right now. I desire to be in conversation in this moment, reclining at this table with all of you because I love you. I can't tell you over the years how many times I've had a conversation with someone that they live a life so opposite to this and has created them, has caused them to create a life that's so far from God. They're like, well, I guess I'll just have to hang out with a bunch of other people who don't like God, who are struggling with the same things. I'll just go do those things because I don't belong at that table. Well, I'm sorry if we created a picture of that table that you didn't belong. the truth if for some reason you've ever felt like that I'm not good enough for that seat I'm telling you right now it's more than you being good enough you know that seat was purchased for you it's purchased for you that's your seat that's your seat you might find you actually have more interesting things to say and some of the other people at that table that you think are more deserving because there's a rawness and there's a vulnerability to you that we can lose as disciples. We begin to think what makes us worthy to sit at that table is the same conversation where Jesus caught his disciples arguing about where they're going to sit in heaven. Like as the long-term devoted Christ followers, we get all complicated about those seats. The beautiful thing about those of you that feel like you don't deserve a seat at that table by the time you get there, you actually want a seat. You don't feel entitled to have one. Like that seat is there for you right now. Right now. That seat's there for you. And the last thing, question to ask ourselves about being hospitable towards God, is does our heart need to be open to the God who heals? And I'm going to tell you right now, I know this is a tricky one. And I know that um, there's times where there's things we see on TV or stuff that we don't understand. And it feels, if I'm just to be super vulnerable, and I know this doesn't feel like a way to charge up faith right now, but sometimes it feels regarding healing, we hear so many stories of things not going in the direction that we want. But listen to me. I was looking at this this past week, and it was a wake-up call for me personally. 22 times in the New Testament, there's miracles of healing physical healing, 
15 of those, Christ is associated with. The other ones were his disciples. And I felt in my heart to say this to you today. And I'm thankful that Pastor Pierre and Pastor Marlies create that environment where I feel I can say that to you. Because God is a God who does heal. And here's what I would ask you. You know, I have some friends that have experienced pretty severe levels of mental illness. Um, as culture has shifted towards being more open and loving to people who struggle with that, I've heard some wild, beautiful confessions in some of my own, for sure. But my friends who have had the courage to believe that God could heal them with what they were struggling with, it may not be that everything associated with that 100% goes away. And what I'm going to say right now, I apologize if it feels like way over the deep end. But when you open up that physical ailment, or when you open up that mental ailment to God, the depression and the anxiety and the spiritual weightedness that's coming at you regarding that, Christ Jesus can help hold that back. Do you hear what I just said? And it might help your mind feel a little bit clearer about how you can get practical help to be healed once when you believe that God can heal you. I know that's complicated. But one of the things that I'm going to pray, and Anaji, you can please come out. One of the things that I'm going to pray in just a moment is that if you've been suffering physically or mentally, even if you've come up for prayer a hundred times or all these different things, and you just feel so worn down or you've lost someone to that, listen, this life can be so difficult regarding these things. But I felt in my heart to tell us today and to remind us that God did not place these examples in the scripture just to tease us, but that we would never lose confidence that he is the God who heals. And I'm sorry if that's upsetting for some of you, but I'm just telling you what I honestly felt compelled to say. So let's bow our heads for just a moment. As Anaji comes out and begins to play such beautiful significance when there's worship music or musicians who are gifted and called to lead worship because there's evidence in the scripture that it's not just noise that makes a room feel better. There's actual evidence in the scripture that when there's music and it's in God's house or when we're worshiping God in the place that where we live that has such beautiful spiritual ramifications. So that's why we love it. And right now with our heads bowed, Lord, I pray that you would help us see if in any way the doors of our heart have closed and we can say that we're still dwelling with you, but our heart in some way, there's just a side of our heart that's hardened. And as a result, the God who longs to be with us in every aspect of life, we have shut out a part of us and we're not experiencing the fullness of who you are. So Lord, I pray right now for those who need to experience the God who multiplies. If you are hearing my voice and that's you, I pray for you right now in Jesus' name. 
that you would have courage to believe that God can multiply your energy, your joy, your enthusiasm, that he can multiply the right friendships in your life, that he can multiply the right kind of business deals, that he can multiply. And don't be disappointed when you believe that and it doesn't instantaneously happen the way you want it. Remain believing that he is the God that multiplies. If you're hearing my voice, do you need to be reminded that God is the God who listens? He is the God who listens. And I pray that he would bring other people into your life that would listen to you in a godly way. Do you need to be reminded today that he is the God who hurts, unafraid of emotion? For some of the men in the room especially, Jesus is the King of kings and the Lord of lords. The Bible calls him the Lion of Judah. They had to select the fiercest animal possible in his creation to represent all that he is. Yet he wept three times in the New Testament. I want to just feel compelled in my heart to say to the men, men, some of your families need your emotion. Your kids, your grandkids need more than the worker. They need the man. Don't be afraid. Your showing lack of emotion will do more damage than you showing good emotion and being who you really are and loving them and expressing yourself. Do we need to be reacquainted with the God who communes? Listen to me, this one's close to my heart. You have a seat. Don't let anyone or anything convince you that you don't, because some people will try. You have a seat. But then lastly, does a heart need to become open again to the God who heals? Jesus, for those of us struggling with a physical ailment of some kind, we've read different things, we've gone about different things, but right now we bring it to you, Lord Jesus. Forgive us of our lack of faith and help us to trust you for those close to us and for ourselves that you didn't put those miracles just to tease us, but you love us and help us, Lord, to continue to believe despite our disappointment and struggles that our faith would be in you. In Jesus' name, and everybody says, Amen.